Hello and welcome to Cloud9Fin, a podcast on all things leverage finance. We follow corporate debt from issuance to redemption, credits from performing to distressed, and everything in between. I'm Bianca Boro, and today I'm sitting down with Mike Scott, Head of Global High Yields and Credit Opportunities at ManGLG. Um, Mike joined ManGLG at the end of 2018 from Schroeder's, where he was fund manager covering UK and European credit. He began his career at Casanova Capital Management in 2005. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Thanks very much, Bianca. It's good to have you here at Riverbank House. <laughs> yeah, it's really a cool setup you've got here. <laughs> so I guess I'll give a bit of background about ManGLG. So uh, ManGLG manages $28 billion of funds and is active across alternative and long-only strategies. It makes up one of the units under Man Group, which acquired ManGLG in 2010. Man Group as a whole manages around $150 billion of funds on a discretionary and quantitative basis. So tell us what is your investment process? How do you essentially decide what to invest in? Sure. Well, I think uh, when we look at the, the high yield market or sub-investment grade market, I think the first thing that we take from it is actually it's very diverse. There's plenty of different uh, types of business models, different sectors, different geographies in which we can invest. And we do think that the pricing uh, becomes increasingly more inefficient as you move down that credit spectrum. So first and foremost, we are high conviction investors and very fundamental in our approach. Uh, typically, we're looking to value companies, uh, value the enterprise value, and really understand how the risks or the capital structure are apportioned um, through a group and understand the relative value of um, uh, an individual situation. I think alongside that, we typically are benchmark agnostic. And really, we don't think that benchmarks or the typical approach to running money in this space um, is really constructive for the for the right outcomes for investors. Uh, the reason being is that when you look at a global benchmark, 70% of that is dollars and 15 or so percent is in US shale. And you as an investor, that would be your default position, excuse the pun, uh, through, 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 a, through a cycle. And actually, we think that, that is, the US market is much more cyclical. There's a much higher proportion of lower quality credit. And actually, the types of um, uh, sectors that we see um, over-representative of the market are much more cyclical. Uh, and so we do like to have the flexibility to move across, a, across the globe, across different sectors, at different business models, and we're active through a credit cycle because I think you find that there's often quite a dichotomy uh, between maybe um, you know, benchmark orientated funds and special situation opportunistic funds and actually being uh, and having the wherewithal to be active through a credit cycle, I think, is actually paramount to delivering risk adjusted returns through that credit cycle. And, and, and really um, uh, having the entire breadth under um, at our disposal is a big distinguishing feature um, that we see. Great. I mean, maybe that feeds in quite nicely into my next question as to how does your approach differ to other fund managers? Um, look, I, I don't necessarily follow what the competition is doing. Um, I think in terms of, you know, how the process has been built and the way that we, we spend our time here um, has been really um, constructed since or use the same process since 2012. And it is a highly idiosyncratic one. So everyone in the team comes from a, a very fundamental background. And we spend an enormous amount of time analyzing businesses and taking views, forward-looking views on how we expect the credit fundamentals of those businesses to evolve and whether or not, importantly, you're paid for those risks today. 
So um, where do you think we are in the credit cycle? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, in our view, we're, we're pretty late uh, in the credit cycle. We have yeah, the, definitely the conditions we see that are in, that are in play uh, usually portend an end of cycle environment. And yeah, that's been driven by uh, a very rapid rise in interest rates. Um, and, you know, we are ex we do think that 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 will well, its impact is already being felt in the economy. But we do think that uh, it will increasingly be felt as we go through, you know, the next 12, 12 or so months. One reason that it has taken slightly longer, um, particularly versus uh, prior cycles is, you know, the uniqueness of the post COVID world has been high fiscal deficits. Um, and we are going into an election year. Um, next year, and clearly the, the U.S. administration, I would say, um, is is keen to um, keep the economy hot, let's say, and unemployment low. Um, but um, ultimately, we think that the credit cycle has only been delayed; it hasn't been cancelled. Um, so, you know, as we look over the next, yeah, you know, into twenty four and beyond. Um, what we see are very high interest rates, high real rates, and an increasingly um, large refinancing schedule. And ultimately, in a fixed rate market, it's once the refinancing starts that you start to see those cash flows pressures build. Uh, and we don't think that this will be any different this time. Uh, as I say, there's just been rather unique factors which have delayed it. Great. Um, so... Refinancing is a hot topic with a lot of maturities coming up in 24 and 2025, coupled with a very high interest rate environment. Um, what sort of risks and opportunities do you see in, in, this, in the current uh, market? I think it's a, that's a really interesting question because I think it's, you know, there are both risks and opportunities. Um, you know, clearly, the refinancing ball is coming into to, to view. Uh, we certainly see that maturity ball picking up very much from 2025 onwards. And typically, a business will look to refi at least 12 months ahead of that uh, maturity date. Um, and so we are starting to see, you know, um, a um, some interesting situations where there is refinancing risk. But um, uh, some of these risks, we think, are overstated in, in certain situations where we can be um, really confident about the um, the the valuation of the business, the cash flows, and the potential for capital to come in externally, whether that's a you know, private equity firm putting in new equity or raising equity in the market, or potentially asset-heavy businesses being able to sell assets to manage that liquidity profile. And that's a very important um, focus of ours. Currently, we do see that there are some very interesting situations and more asset-heavy business models that do have quite front-loaded um, maturity schedules and we do think that clearly not all of these situations but there are you know a handful let's say that that do present you know well above market yields for what we think are well below market risks okay and I guess maybe we could break it down into the differences you see I guess the dynamics between the US and European markets sure so I think you know when we look at the two markets uh, or the three markets including the UK um, the US is much more of a single B and triple C market. Um, yeah, we see that the credit quality is typically worse, you know, i.e. there's higher leverage. There are significantly more cyclical B 
businesses, we think, um, within the US market. And then we sort of turn that on its head. We look at sort of Europe and the UK and actually we find a much healthier picture from a credit quality perspective. It's almost the reverse in equities where Europe is considered the cyclical market and the US the defensive market, let's say. But you know, we would actually characterize it from a credit perspective as kind of the other way around. You know, Europe is, we see it much more high quality. Um, it's certainly more focused on the upper upper echelons of the, the, the high yield space. And I'd also say that there's a bigger proportion of, uh, let's say less cyclical, um, more cash generative um, sectors or more reliably cash generative sectors than, than what we see in the US. I think from a relative value perspective, you know, clearly um, the US is trading at, you know, tighter levels on a on a currency adjusted basis than um, you know, Europe and particularly the UK currently. And that we think is unwarranted given the, the, the breadth of risks that we we think could populate 2024. Okay, interesting. Um, I mean, we've faced a lot of headwinds recently with COVID-19, the war in um, Ukraine, um, which has impacted a lot of the credits we see in the market. Um, so what it, what is your sort of strategy when a company that you might have invested in sort of becomes more stressed or distressed? Um, so... Yeah, we we approach um, situations always based on on value and our our un, our view on valuations of a particular situation, and we may get involved in more stressed and distressed situations when we're getting, uh, you know, with a when we think that there is a significant margin of safety um, at the level that we're paying for the for the for the bonds uh, in the market relative to what we consider the enterprise value or um, to be for this business. And, you know, it is a substantially more um, uh, um, deeper task, I would say, in terms of understanding not just, you know, the fundamental valuation view, but also the legal aspects, you know, the documentation, and also the jurisdictional aspects as well, because these can also come into play in terms of how you may view the riskiness of, of um, or the risk reward of a particular situation. And I think you know, beyond that, there's also uh, one needs to have a very good understanding of the stakeholders, the players involved. Uh, and these could be a very broad breadth of, uh, of players, both from the owners of the company, you know, whether it's family run or private equity owned, but also to potentially who's also involved in the same situation. They may have very, very different motivations. So um, as I say, everything we do is always valuation driven. So we're always looking to value a company you know, the, the enterprise value is and the unlevered free cash flow of a business is the bedrock on which we can um, formulate um, relative value decisions. And that's the same in a performing situation and it's the same in a, a distressed situation. Okay. And um, real estate has come under a lot of stress given the high interest rate environment, driving property values down, coupled with uh, this dampening in demand. Um, what is your view on, on the sector? Uh, it's a it's a very interesting sector, and I I I would say that you know during 2022, um, this was an area of the market that came under extreme pressure. So actually, when we look we look at total return terms in 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 last year, the sector was down over 22 percent versus the market that was down you know, 11 or 12 percent or so. Uh, so there was a significant underperformance, and what we started to see was that there was some interesting opportunities in a select number of situations which started to become much more interesting because obviously 
they had suffered in the same way that a lot of the rest of the sector had. Um, you know, typically what we look for, um, you know, we look for um, you know, strong asset value. Um, we look for you know the ability for for those companies to potentially raise new funding. Um, you know, that can come through a variety of different means: JVs, um, asset sales, uh, and really, there's been some quite interesting situations in. Um, parts of the real estate market, particularly in in some of the shorter dated maturities, um, I wouldn't say that in aggregate and all real estate situations are interesting. Absolutely not. Some of these business models we think are going to be under pressure for a very long period of time in this new world of of higher interest rates. Let's say, um, but equally with you know when you do see a sector under this much pressure, there's often some opportunity that builds in a select number of situations, and that's very much how we view it. Yeah, definitely. Um, are there any other sectors that you're cautious on? Cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, I think when we look at, you know, the world today, we see um, you know, certain risk building, particularly in the regional banking space uh, in, in the US. I think everyone's very familiar of um, the deposit situation and the liability situation of these banks. You know, I think you'd have to be um, really not paying attention had you had you not understood um, you know how quickly uh, and how aggressively deposits have moved out of, mm. of the regional banking space but you know that is very much yesterday's story you know what we consider to be uh, extremely problematic is the, the the commercial real estate exposures that some of these regional banks or mm. a lot of these regional banks have what you'll find in a typical regional bank in the US is that they've learned you know, 40% of their balance sheet has been lent to commercial real estate. And some players have even lent maybe three, five, even eight times their equity base in, in into real estate. So it doesn't take a huge amount of evaluation reset for, for the equity to be um, completely wiped out. So we do think that, and this is not, a, this is not a, an issue that can be solved by um, the, the Fed providing unlimited liquidity. And even that comes at a cost. But, you know, this is a solvency issue. It's an asset problem. And we think that this is very much going to be with us uh, for quite some time. So I think away from that, we also see, you know, some issues within the basic um, and in industrial segments of the market. I think you know, from our perspective, you know, many of these companies are quite, um, are quite often price takers. So the revenues adjust very quickly to the pricing environment, but they also have quite high fixed costs. They have a lot of plants, et cetera. And we think in a more, we consider the next 12 or so months is going to see nominal growth start to be under pressure, which is obviously going to bring the pricing and the revenue um, down um, and costs will be much slower to react or, or to adjust. And we are very much of the view that these these segments will continue and certainly the, um, continue to see margin pressure. And we think that that margin pressure will step up. Mm. Okay. Um, any sectors that you're bullish on? <laughs> you know, I think what we typically are focusing on, you know, today are businesses that we consider to have, you know, strong cash generation in a wide variety of outcomes. So an area of the market we, we like uh, today is on the gaming side. Um, we do think that a number of these uh, these companies have very robust cash flows. Um, 
you know, I think if you went back to the GFC, it is a sector that actually managed to grow as top market. Um, and yet yields and spreads in the space, um, you know, certainly provide a very much a decent premium uh, or decent spread to market averages. And, you know, that for us, we think is a sector where its fundamentals are broadly underpriced um, in, in, in terms of how we expect um, them to play out in both of downside cases, but also, uh, let's say, um, more benign environment, all the status quo, let's say, uh, into 2024. Uh, I think alongside that, I will say we've certainly seen good value um, in the financial space um, in Europe. We think that the difference between the European banking sector and the US banking sector is stark. Um, you know, the capital levels in in Europe um, and the credit quality of, let's say, all the capital ratios have been extremely well policed um, by the European regulator. And the issue around Credit Suisse was very much a Credit Suisse story. It wasn't symptomatic of the wider, uh, the, 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 the wider financial um, uh, landscape in, in, in Europe. So particularly the types of businesses and financials that we like, I would say that we're definitely more focused on um, yeah, traditional mortgage lenders. Um, these typically have relatively low risk balance sheets. They're also benefiting from the high interest rate environment, particularly in areas like um, Iberia, so Spain and Portugal, for instance, and in some respects the the UK. Uh, and and you know is providing is has provided really interesting entry points during that Credit Suisse kind of debacle and the the regional banking crisis um, offered some really good opportunities in what we consider to be relatively speaking, lower, lower risk balance sheets to SME lenders and um, uh, investment bank business models, for instance. Okay. Um, and I guess uh, one last thing about bankruptcies. Um, what's, what's your view on sort of the UK versus US bankruptcy regimes? I would say that the US and the UK have pretty well trodden paths. I would say that they, the US extremely well understood in terms of the chapter 11 process. Um, and from our perspective, given the, the well, the well trodden nature of a chapter 11, let's say, we often don't find too much value in terms of distress situations in the US. They're always more commonly efficiently priced, not say that we don't ever, but I would say in general, um, relative to the UK and Europe. So UK is still pretty good from a creditors perspective, you have obviously scheme arrangement or, you know, the new restructuring plan. And, you know, these have been tested um, and are also efficient. What I would say is that it's really Europe and where you see a much broader uh, patchwork of, of legal regimes, even though Europe is obviously well, considered to be a homogenous economic block, each country will often have its own regime. Uh, and this can lead to dramatically different outcomes for creditors from whether in Italy or France, you know, Germany. Uh, what have you very much have different um uh can, can can go down different routes and and that we think is actually interesting because it means that we um can quite often find um yeah very unique situations depending on the jurisdictions in which they operate it's interesting because i think the eu has tried to hum, hum, like you know homogenize they, they i mean they are they, they they have they have moved closer um but I still think there's night and day difference between, you know, an Italian 
Concord Auto Process and the new restructuring laws that have been brought into place in Germany, which are trying to mirror much more of a scheme of arrangement uh, in the UK. So um, it, it is still, I still think there's a long way to go until you have a harmonized uh, bankruptcy regime in Europe. Great. Well, that's all we've got time for uh, this week. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Thank you very much, Bianca. And thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. Please let us know if you have any feedback. You can reach out to us at any time by emailing team at ninefin.com. Check in next week to hear the latest on US markets with our colleague, Will Cadre-Smith. And we'll be back the week after that. See you then.